Hi there! This month, we have got a regular Noah's Ark for you. From the coronavirus strains that have been spreading through minks, to a new DNA test that can track poached elephant ivory, to the genetics of a very useful and very inbred cat called Cinnamon. Plus, scientists have discovered a brand new genetic disease via an unlikely approach and an even unlikelier coincidence. I'm Phil Sansom, and this is Naked Genetics. Since July, over 200 people in Denmark have been infected with a strain of the coronavirus that has been spreading through mink farms. And crucially, the mink have given 12 of those people a unique version of the virus. Reportedly, this version has been transmitted human to human as well, although it's not clear whether this is still going on. To address the problem, scientists are now trying to understand how the virus behaves in minks and whether the unique version that comes from minks presents a unique problem for treatments. Alina Chan is a scientist from the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard who wasn't involved with the Danish research but has been looking into COVID in minks. In Denmark, they have more than 1,100 mink farms. More than 200 have been found to have COVID-19 outbreaks. And now that virus that has been circulating among the minks has passed back into the human population in Denmark. Wow. You know, I wouldn't have put minks as top on my list of COVID threats. Yeah, this is not too surprising, although it's really devastating to hear this news. That's because uh, we've known for a while, scientists have known for a while, that SARS-type viruses can infect ferrets, which are in the same family as minks. And so it's not surprising that minks are susceptible to SARS-2. So is this the first time that minks have got SARS-CoV-2? No, so this is not the first time that this whole scenario of transmission from humans to minks to humans has been observed. As of today, there are at least six countries that have reported these mink outbreaks. So we've got Denmark, but the first was actually the Netherlands, and they were the first to report a mink fung outbreak back in April of this year. Do we know what happens to the virus when it's in the minks? This part is, is kind of a mystery, or I'd say at least an ongoing study. There were two publications that just came out. Uh, one of them is by the Dutch group. There are a few caveats in their approach. But they said that they see some hints of faster evolution of the virus in the minks. More analysis needs to be done and by independent uh, groups of scientists. The other publication is by the Danish group, but this is a working paper. And so they have not shared their mink genomes yet, although they have committed to the WHO that they will. So we don't have the full picture then of what the virus looks like in the minks. But am I right that we do know what the virus looks like once it's left minks and is back in humans again? Yes, we can see what could be the mink-associated variants coming out back into the human population in these two countries as well. In Denmark, there's one cluster that is particularly concerning. It's called Cluster 5. A cluster is a group of SARS-2 sequences, in this case, that look really similar to each other. This cluster has a combination of different mutations in the uh, spike gene. This is what helps it to infect different host species. And it's also the target of some of the most potent therapeutic antibodies. What are the mutations? They see about three to four different mutations. And actually, each one of them has been around since at least March across many countries and continents. So the individual mutations, they are not novel, but as a combo, they are novel. But they found that the most recent mutation, I692V, no other country in the world has uh, detected it. And it only appeared in August. I mean, what's the implication? According to the Danish paper that came out, they got convalescent plasma from patients, and they found that in some of the cases, the 
plasma was not able to neutralize the new mink-associated variant. And so now they are a bit worried that this could have an impact on antibody therapeutics or vaccines in development. But again, just to emphasize, the effect that they saw is not that drastic, but it does suggest that people who don't have long-lasting immunity could be susceptible to this new variant. So what's your take? Is the virus now more dangerous that it's gone through minks? I don't know. I think that's the answer that most scientists would tell you is that we just don't know. I don't think people should panic. When I say mutations, it doesn't mean that every single mutation makes these viruses more transmissible or more dangerous for humans. Not at all. In fact, many of them could actually be taking a, a step backwards, considering that they are adapting to a different animal species. What the worry here is, besides from these mink farms being a, a pool, they are generating more diverse viruses. So if these different variants, even if some of them are weaker in humans, if they enter the human population again, and we start implementing uh, widespread vaccination, for example, this will select for those rare variants that vaccines don't work as well against. And so countries had better keep an eye on their mink farms. Alina Chan, commenting on two bits of research, a Dutch paper out in Science, and an unpublished Danish working report, both of which we'll link to on our website. Alina also has an online tool where you can track specific coronavirus mutations. That's at covidcg.org. From minks to trunks. And forensic scientists have developed a new method to track illegal elephant ivory by looking at the DNA inside. Processed ivory contains only tiny and mangled genetic fragments from the original animal. And so previously, it's been difficult to tell anything at all. But Adrian Lineker from Purdue University and his colleagues say their test can tell Asian elephant from African, and based on their experiments, with 100% accuracy. Something like 25,000 elephants are killed every year for ivory. It's taken from Africa, particularly, traded over into Southeast Asia, processed into trinkets of various descriptions, and then sold on the black market. Now, somewhere like Thailand does have strict regulations about what it can and cannot import. But when you've got a bit of ivory in front of you, the question is, firstly, is it ivory? Is it from an elephant? Ivory could come from things like hippopotamus. It could come from other animals, particularly like narwhals. Second question, is it from Asia or is it from Africa? Because you can't just look at ivory and say it's from Africa, it's from Asia or it's ivory even. Right Now, you can do some bits of microscopy and get quite good at that, but it doesn't really answer those detailed questions about African or Asian elephants. Now, what we've done in the paper is looked at the smallest bits of DNA we can find, really old samples, really trace materials. And now you're going to get very, very, very small amounts of DNA left, down to what we call picograms, 10 to the minus 12 of a gram. It is very, very small. What we've done in our test is developed a methodology whereby very quickly, within a process of only a few hours, a method that will tell whether you've got African or Asian elephant present. Who is going to use this test then? Well, where we hope this could be used is by borders guards out in the field. And the other test, we've got some other tests which can do that. But they do require very sophisticated equipment, and it can take a couple of days. Our technology is very portable. It requires very simple equipment. It requires very little training. And so what we would like to do is deploy it into the field, into where rangers 
can work rather than laboratory staff. You, you can tell African from Asian elephant then. Can you tell any more? Can you tell where in Africa the elephant's from, something like that? No, we can't. That's the next part of our test to try and get that more and more sensitive. Now, being able to tell whether it's African or Asian helps an awful lot in legislation. A lot of countries legislate whether it's African or Asian. And that really does help in some sort of trafficking to work out you know, the routes at which that bit of ivory has been traded. Why ivory? What's the priority? Wildlife crime is, by any metric, massive and highly organized. Somewhere in the order of between 20 and 30 billion pounds per year. That's only second to narcotics. It's the second most highly lucrative trade, all of which is illegal. This will be groups of people, often using helicopters, come down, kill elephants very quickly, remove the ivory, back into a vehicle and shoot off. So you can see that it's a very sophisticated type of crime. One thing I'd like to add is that forensic science has to make sure that there aren't errors in what we do. If you're in from a research background, no one goes to jail if you make one error out of a thousand tests. But in forensic science, that might happen. So we need to go to a bit more level of scrutiny to make sure that our tests are robust and reliable. Adrian Lineker. You can read about his technique in the International Journal of Legal Medicine. Now, for all the cat people out there, our furry friends have just had their most thorough genome sequencing to date. A cat called Cinnamon now serves as the reference genome, the cat against which to compare all other cats. And the team behind it have already discovered new genetic variants that relate to humans as well. Leslie Lyons. We have been able to complete the most contiguous genome assembly for the domestic cat, which rivals that of most any other species. So what that means is that we have most all the puzzle pieces of the genome lined up properly, and that gives us a great genetic resource to do all kind of uh, health studies and evolutionary studies in cats. You'll have to explain this a bit to me, because didn't we have a cat genome before? And isn't sort of a genome a genome? Right. Well, yeah, that's what everyone thinks. So once you've sequenced the genome, you're done. But no, genomes are quite complex. And so we do them at different levels of resolution. And it all depends on the technology that's available. And so now we have something called long read technology, which allows us to put the genome into larger pieces. So picture a puzzle. Certainly the puzzle with the smaller number of pieces are easier to put together. And you get them more correct. You know, sometimes when you're putting puzzles together, you somewhat try to force a piece and you think that's the right piece. And then later, as you do more of the assembly, you realize, oh, I kind of forced that piece. That's the wrong piece. Let me put the right one in. That's what we're constantly doing with genome assemblies. We're constantly correcting things and making them more finished from beginning to end. So there's no gaps in the sequence. What do you have here then that you didn't have before? We have a whole gene 
as well as we probably have more of the fragments that are upstream of the gene. And that's like the regulatory sequences of the gene. That's what turns a gene on and off. And that is actually what makes species different. Most species all have about the same number of genes and the same type of genes. However, their regulation, when they get turned on and off during development and how much they get turned on or off, that makes the difference between a cat being a cat and a human being a human. For example, we have the gene to make whiskers, but we have a different regulatory element. You're joking. I have a whiskers gene. You have a whiskers gene. Is there some way I can activate it and become a, a cat superhero? <laughs> yeah, we if, if we can get that regulatory element popped in, uh, which now we can technically do with CRISPR and genome editing, we could probably give you whiskers. Wow. Okay. Let's park that for another episode. Okay. <laughs> in this cat genome, did you find bits like that, little regulatory elements that control things that you didn't expect? Yes, in the new cat genome, we were able to find better regulatory sequences and also sequences that are called structural variants. And structural variants are just larger DNA changes that are harder to see with the short read sequence. By being able to see these larger structural variants, we were actually able to find a disease mutation that we've been looking for quite a long time, and that is the dwarfism of munchkin cats. What does a munchkin cat look like? Because I don't think I've ever seen one before. Yeah, so munchkin cats have a very small structural variant in the gene called UGDH, and this is what causes them to have short legs. So there's many types of what we call disproportionate dwarfism. If you've watched any of the TV shows like Games of Thrones, you'll recognize characters with disproportionate dwarfism. Cats have the same thing. Their torso is the right size, but just their legs are shortened. And so we found a brand new gene, which means this gene can now be investigated in humans as well. Is it really the same between humans and cats? Yeah, absolutely. Most of the genes that we find in humans are what we find in cats as well. Are munchkin cats, would you say, more cute than your average cat? That's a very personal opinion. So I think cats are just quite beautiful, moving artwork. There's many beautiful cats and it's to each his own, really. Do you mind if we look at a picture? Please do. There should, should have been a picture right in the paper, too. All right, here's one. The legs are really short. That is quite cute, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This cat, is this the one that you got the really well-sequenced genome for? Actually, no. Cinnamon is the reference sequence. An Abyssinian cat called Cinnamon. And so that becomes our baseline that we compare every other cat to. That is our gold standard. Well, thank you to Cinnamon for the gold standard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Leslie Lyons from the University of Missouri, also helping lead the 99 Lives Cat Genome Project. That's it now for animals. Coming up on the program... I'm going to do things backwards. How a brand new human autoimmune condition was discovered. Stay with us. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. 
Hello, I'm Chris Barrow, bringing you a brand new podcast called Naked Gaming. This is where we look at gaming news. Top three players in each of the last few levels of the game, they got a mention in my PhD thesis. Reviews. So you got a, like, jog, and then you've also got to squeeze it in and out. The ring, that is. <laughs> oh, you're putting me off! And we also go back in time with Retro Revival. It said in the tutorial, Mario jumps over the small objects automatically. So sometimes you think, well... What am I even here for? Naked Gaming. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. In the second part of the program, the story that scientists from the USA's National Institutes of Health have discovered a new disease – It's a rare autoimmune condition where your own immune system gets too aggressive and starts attacking parts of your body, often to devastating effect. It's called Vexus, like Texas, but with a V, and the story of its discovery is pretty surprising. Over to the NIH's Dan Kastner. Vexus is a fascinating uh, disorder that was recently discovered by a brilliant physician-scientist fellow working in my research laboratory, David Beck. And just as an overview, Vexus is a disorder that uh, we see in middle-aged to elderly men, only men at least so far, that is characterized by a number of interesting clinical features, recurrent unexplained fevers, pustular lesions of the skin, inflammation of the cartilage in their ears or in their nose or sometimes in the trachea. And if it's in the trachea, the trachea could actually collapse and lead to the person smothering. So that's a a terrible thing uh, that can happen. Inflammation of the blood vessels, sometimes an inflammation uh, in the lungs that can lead to a, a severe respiratory problem. It is a disorder that, unfortunately, patients who have it oftentimes are treated with many different anti-inflammatory medications without uh, beneficial effect. And most of the patients that we see with this disease actually are on high doses of steroids. And even then, uh, oftentimes, uh, they can be quite ill. So this is a very serious disease and a disease where, at least amongst the series of 25 patients that we first characterized, 40% of those men uh, have succumbed uh, to their illness. There's a lot of overlap with all these symptoms between Vexus and other inflammatory conditions. After all, inflammation is a huge part of the body's immune defenses. But you can't treat these properly if you don't know the cause. Investigators like Dan are often trying to find genetic mutations that cause specific syndromes or that are part of a complex web of causes. And with many patients, they hit a brick wall. The NIH had thousands of such undiagnosed people. Enter researcher David Beck. The way in which uh, the good Dr. Beck discovered Vexus is really extraordinary. We had a clinic of patients who have undiagnosed inflammatory diseases. And so David asked the question, how can we find other genes that might be causative in the patients for whom we don't have an explanation? And the usual way that one would do it would be to group together subsets of patients according to their clinical manifestations. You might take a group of patients that have a certain kind of arthritis and group them together. And then for each group, you would try 
looking at their genome to find something in common that could explain their illness. Instead of taking that approach, he said, well, you know, we've, we've done that before and we've already sort of exhausted that approach. I'm going to turn the paradigm on its head. I'm going to do things backwards. I'm going to start with a list of genes and see whether or not I can find a common thread that could tie together some subset of patients uh, amongst our undiagnosed patients. And after applying this approach, there were three middle-aged men who actually had a misspelling in a particular gene called UBA1. And they all had the misspelling at the same place. All three men seemed to be heterozygous for this mutation, meaning they had one normal copy of UBA1 and one messed up copy. The thing that was curious about all this, these were three middle-aged men and they had mutations in a gene that's encoded on the X chromosome, and it looked like they had two different copies of this gene, one normal copy and one that was the mutant copy. Now, if you have been paying attention to me, you know that there's something wrong with this story because, of course, men only have usually one X chromosome, What's going on here? How can that be? According to Dan, there are three possible explanations. Firstly, the machine made three identical mistakes. Unlikely, but possible. Secondly, that the three patients were males with two X chromosomes. Again, possible. But the unusual insight here was realizing that there's a third option. Maybe this mutation in UBA1 didn't appear in these men at conception or even early during development. Maybe it's what's called a somatic mutation, a mutation that happened in these men's adult bodies, specifically in their blood. These are mutations that arise just in a particular subset of white blood cells, which of course are the cells that are responsible for inflammation. Rather than just thinking it was a mistake, instead David said, maybe what's going on is that this actually is a somatic mutation, where a subset of the cells in the blood have the mutation, and a subset of the cells don't have the mutation, and that would give you the same kind of a picture, where it looks like one normal copy and one mutant copy of the gene. Some of this type of white blood cell had the normal UBA1, and some of them had the mutation. The gene sequencing shows you both versions, and so most would assume that all of the cells have them both. Except in this case, the researchers guessed that wasn't true, and turned out to be right. They're really on the hunt now. Where have these mutated cells come from? Well, white blood cells like these are born out of precursor cells. And when Dan went after the precursor cells, the story took another twist. It is fact stranger than fiction. We went to the hematopathologist. We were looking at the precursor cells in these patients' bone marrow. And Dr. Calvo, the hematopathologist, told us, well, you know, there are these funny-looking bubble-like structures in the precursor cells in the bone marrow. They're called vacuoles. And all three of these men have these vacuoles. And she was saying, well, you know, I've seen this somewhere before. A few days later, we came back to the hematopathology lab, and Dr. Calvo was there waiting for us. And very ceremoniously, she presented to us two reports. And she said, here, Dan, these are reports of your patients 
from eight years ago who had these vacuoles. You guys should go back and check this gene and see if those patients have mutations in this gene too. So we did, and sure enough, she was right. These patients from eight years ago had the same mutation. As we started to expand the spectrum, it turns out that, in fact, we could find 25 patients. They now have 50 patients and counting with Vexus, which I can now confidently explain stands for the five key characteristics of the condition. V for vacuoles, E for E1 ligase, which is referring to the gene UBA1, X for X-linked, the gene being on the X chromosome, A for auto-inflammatory, and S for somatic, because it's a somatic mutation. I know, I know, let's just stick with Vexus, why don't we? The story of Vexus holds an important lesson for the investigators looking for rare diseases. Sometimes, not always, it helps to start the hunt in the genes. This approach is sometimes called the genotype-first approach, and this is really the first vindication of this approach in inflammatory diseases. Now, the other big take-home message from this is that, in fact, these mutations are mutations that are only seen in a subset of white blood cells and where we infer that these mutations probably arose later on in life. And this sort of expands the concept, if you will, of somatic mutation, of mutation that arises in cells in the body. We have known for a long time that somatic mutations can give rise to cancer. But what this new disease, Vexus, is teaching us is that somatic mutations can sometimes give rise to adult-onset inflammatory disease. And then the third take-home message is the devilishly clever insight that, in fact, when one sees two versions of a gene on the X chromosome in a male, it may be mosaicism, rather than a sequencing error. And this is going to revolutionize the way that we look at genes that are encoded on the X chromosome in terms of their mutational profile. Big change for the future of research, but a nothing conclusion if I'm one of those living with Vexus. I might have inflamed blood vessels, lungs, cartilage, throat. Can Dan actually help me out? Is there anything that we can do for our patients now that we know what's going on? It just so happens that actually one of the patients eventually underwent a bone marrow transplant. And the bone marrow transplant has been very uh, effective in controlling his clinical picture. And so this suggests to us that perhaps bone marrow transplantation, at least under some circumstances, may be helpful. Dan Kastner from the National Institutes of Health. That's it for this month's Naked Genetics. Thanks to Alina Chan, Adrian Lineker, Leslie Lyons, and Dan Kastner. If you'd like to get in touch with the program, send an email to chris at nakedscientists.com and tag your email with Naked Genetics or come find us on Twitter. I've been Phil Sansom, and until next month, take care and goodbye. Goodbye.